If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy here in D.C. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Do you agree with uh, children being taken away from No, I hate it. I hate the children being taken away. The Democrats have to change their law. That's their law. That was Donald Trump being interviewed by numerous outlets last week. Today on Beyond the Bubble, we're examining how the debate over the border and the separation of families is affecting the Democratic and Republican parties. Many are calling this a crisis as children are being separated from their families and put into detention centers. Andrea, who's going to help us break this down? Albert Morales, a senior political director at the left-leaning opinion research firm Latino Decisions. Then we have our own Adam Wolner, who's going to tell us about the Influencer Series and what voters think about immigration right now. All right, you ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. This is CNN Breaking News. Tonight, we're getting disturbing audio of 10 Central American children who were separated in the field by border So obviously, what is happening at the border is a very emotional subject. It's a very sensitive subject. And for a lot of Americans, uh, it affects them viscerally. You know, what we wanted to do on this episode is really, though, to examine the politics behind it. Because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, the only way that either this policy will continue or this policy will change, ultimately, is through politics. It's through the politics of the moment and how Republicans react to this and whether they move at a congressional level to stop it. Or it happens electorally in November when, if Democrats are elected, who will be a little bit more vigilant in opposing President Trump and his policies. And that's why we wanted to bring on Albert Morales from Latino Decisions to give us a sense of how this is going to affect politics both now and toward November. Albert, thanks so much for being here. Hey, you bet. We wanted to bring Albert on today, not just because he is a Fort Worth native, but because he maybe more so than anyone else has been there for all of the other times that Democrats and some Republicans have thought that this would be the moment that moved Latino voters. Is there any reason to think that this is different? Yes. Um, You know, traditionally, on a national scale, uh, Republicans used to be able to rely on 40 percent of the Latino vote if their candidate was deemed as moderate back in the Bush days. We've seen a steady decline in that number. Now the split is closer to 70-30 on a good day. Um, and that's Florida, for example, pockets of Florida. You look at other states, uh, whether it's Texas or Nevada, anywhere in the southwest, and as early as 2016, that number hovered closer to around 20%. If you look at the exit polls, 
that number is reported to be higher. But uh, what we do at Latino Decisions is we conduct an election e-poll the night before the election with likely Latino voters. And we found we, we find that that is a far more accurate read. And then when we go back and match it to precinct data, it's pretty pretty close to what we research and come up with the night prior to the election. A good example in Texas, for example, the number that was thrown out there by some of the exit polls that Trump had gotten far north of 30 percent of the Latino vote, and we found that number was closer to 20, not 19 percent. Not to interrupt you, but how did that compare to Mitt Romney? I mean, another Republican nominee who was not exactly popular with uh, the Hispanic community. Mitt Romney had done slightly better. You might remember Mitt Romney was a self-deport guy. The answer is self-deportation, which is people decide that they can do better by going home because they can't find work here because they don't have legal documentation to allow them to work here. People and forget so that now. People forget uh, that now. People forget that now, but his rhetoric on immigration was really seen as a, a political problem in 2012. Yeah, it was, and he, 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 didn't make, he didn't make himself any friends, you know, now that he's running for the Senate in Utah. I thought he might moderate himself a little bit more, but it uh, sounds like he's sticking to his not exactly being welcoming of comprehensive immigration reform. He still seems to be sticking to his hard right line of thinking. But when we talk about how Mitt Romney performed poorly and then Donald Trump performed even worse with these voters in, in 2016, that that's when we get to the question I think Andrea is asking is, have Republicans already reached the bottom? Or what evidence have you seen that not just in the Trump presidency, but particularly now with the humanitarian crisis on the border, that it could drop even further? I mean, what, what are you seeing in your own data? We started seeing signs of Latinos fleeing the Republican Party as early as last year, immediately following the presidential. We were doing some work in, in Florida on some special elections. And we were probing voters who had not voted, for example, in the presidential, and there was a lot of remorse. And uh, folks up and down swore that they would, from, from, from here on out, vote in every election that they possibly could. There was no evidence of Latinos wanting to give this guy a chance, if you will. And there was a lot of that following uh, Trump's election. People were going to give him a, a chance to see what he would do. And what we've seen is that he's not exactly... Uh, realigning his views in any way that would lead us to believe he's more moderate and instead he's doubled down on his anti-immigrant rhetoric and based on what we're seeing on the news today he's even going after uh, children and that is I mean I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, following his his election. Do you think that this what's happening now on the border is just a, a different order of magnitude, whether that is that the story is just breaking through like other immigration stories haven't, or just that when people find out about it, they're having a more visceral or emotional reaction to it? The short answer is we don't know yet because this literally just hit our TV screens in, over the last uh, few days. And until research is conducted to prove otherwise, I'm going to have to say that, yes, it has, because everyone is up in arms about it. It's on TV, it's on radio, it's on the internet, it's everywhere, and it's constant. And you're seeing a lot of backpedaling by Republicans. You're seeing four of our living first ladies come out with statements condemning this policy. You had Laura Bush, who, I don't remember the last time I heard her speak, came out with this bruising op-ed in the Washington Post about how this was uh, not the right thing to do, and having been a first lady and a resident of a border state, she understands 
the problems that come with uh, illegal immigration, but this was a bridge too far kind of thing. So not only did Laura Bush release a statement about separating children from their families, so did Melania Trump. In a statement her spokesperson sent to CNN this past Sunday, uh, the spokesperson said, quote, Mrs. Trump hates to see children separated from their families and hopes both sides of the aisle can finally come together to achieve successful immigration reform. Uh, anecdotally, I talked to my dad yesterday and we would address this very question. I asked him, Dad, do you think this will finally be enough to compel all of our family to come out and vote on election day? He said, forget our family. White people are angry about this in a way that I've never seen them before. So I think he said, yes, I think this is different. He said, our weatherman, David Finfrock, at the local, uh, our local weather guy who's been there for like 43 years on the local station, he tweeted about it. I mean, this is unprecedented voices that we're hearing come out in opposition to this policy. And I don't, I don't see this dying down at all until they are able to you know, come up with some kind of solution that ends it in rather quickly because this to say that the Republicans are bleeding right now is an understatement. They're really hemorrhaging. And unless they stop this fairly soon, I don't see a good day for them come November. Set the scene for us in Texas a little bit. You have a gubernatorial race there, Greg Abbott versus a Hispanic challenger. You have Ted Cruz's reelection versus Beto O'Rourke. But Republicans in Texas have taken more than 40 percent of the vote. What's going on in Texas? O'Rourke is a phenomenon. Um, you know, he is appealing to not only Latino voters, but also millennials and younger voters who we don't tend to see come out and vote in huge numbers. So he's he's stricken a chord there. His successes will also be tied to, obviously, an increased uh, Latino voter turnout that may or may not be triggered by our gubernatorial candidate. They think it remains to be seen how strong a candidate, Lupe Valdez, will become uh, election day. That said, you know, Greg Abbott and you know has done a good job at campaigning in Latino communities. He's known for having a good uh, Hispanic outreach effort, often led by his wife and his mother-in-law and kids. I don't believe that number is anywhere near 40 percent. I'm referring to the latest Quinnipiac poll that claims both he and Cruz are hovering around that number in Latino support. In this environment, that is just it's virtually impossible. Um, but until you conduct a statewide Latino poll, you know, we won't really know. Uh, oftentimes with these statewide polls, either the sample is not as great uh, that they use or it's, it's, it's not conducted bilingually. You have to have a fully bilingual poll in Texas if you're going to get it right. So there are a lot of elements that go into researching the Latino vote in Texas that often at times sort of get glossed over and we have a hard time coming up with uh, really accurate data until really our election e poll that we tend to do. Is anyone in a position to conduct a poll like that? Congressman O'Rourke's campaign says they're not going to hire a pollster. We have some members from the Republican side, but is anybody in a position to conduct a poll of statewide Latinos? Sure. I, I think as as the race starts coming together, in, and not just Texas, you're going to see a lot of states have strong coordinated campaigns this cycle. Remains to be seen how strong and effective a coordinated campaign effort Texas will have. Texas is a huge state. I don't need to tell you. But unless you have this, you know, strong coordinated effort, it, it still remains a, an uphill climb. Luckily, there isn't a congressional seat where we don't have a Democratic recruit that isn't strong in the state. So that also is going to add to this 
Uh, in Texas, we also have 11 candidates for state Senate, six of which I think are viable. We're only two Senate seats away from overriding the Senate. So if we get two of those six, you know, we're, we're that much closer. Of course, they might change that number <laughs> if Republicans remain in control, but still, it'll be a good day in Texas if we're able to win six of those 11 seats be phenomenal gains for us. And then you're really talking about having some competitive races come 2020 and 2022. That race to make Texas purple or blue becomes a lot more realistic, rather. Yeah, but do you worry that, whether it's true or not, that the Republican Party has just decided that its coalition, it's it's already bottomed out with Hispanic voters, and that its coalition, even moving forward, doesn't need them? You know, that they can focus on their base, their mostly white base. And that's why you see decisions like we've seen from the administration to do this, because their political calculation in their mind, it just it won't matter, you know, because their base will rally to it. And that obviously would be an enormous problem for uh, the Hispanic community if that's how the, the Republican Party really starts to conceive of itself and really starts to make political decisions. I worry about it, specifically in Texas, you know, having come from there. A lot of my friends when I moved up here were moving up here along my side because they were coming to work for the Bush administration. We had, you know, bond times together and a lot of folks, frankly, who I still consider moderates, even they don't feel at home uh, with this party. But our two-party system, I think, is the glue that holds our democracy together, whether you're in Texas or looking at this from a you know, national viewpoint. I don't want a single party rule in this country. I don't think anyone that's reasonable does because, you know, there's no room for debate. And in in Texas, I think what's held the Republican coalition together is I've always believed that Texas is the heart of the Latino Bible Belt. I grew up in a Southern Baptist home and my parents are still three days a week tithing church going people and they don't recognize the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. I'm not sure how they voted in the past. You know, I wish I could say that they probably always voted Democrat, but I know some of their social views are tied lockstep to the party, but even today, someone like them struggles to believe that this party has a place for them. And that's unfortunate, whether you're talking about personal friends or family, it's just nobody wants to see one party rule. Somebody who, a woman who studies um, young voters on the Republican side was sort of describing a similar problem that if you win an election without them, then you don't then refocus on how to get them in the future. Yeah, once you lose these young voters, it's very hard to get them back. And whether you're talking about Latinos or young millennials or anyone for that matter, if if, if you lose them at a young age, it's very hard to, to gain them back. Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen in focus groups since the election? There is uh, a a prevailing theme that because of what happened in 2016, I am definitely going to vote. I am not uh, 100% sure that my vote is going to count, but I'm going to vote anyway because nothing is worse than looking at myself in the mirror after having not voted in 2016. And having that feeling again in 2018. That is a common theme that comes up even when you're not trying to probe it. Uh, It's just people voluntarily say, I regret not voting, and this year I am going to vote, and I'm going to bring someone with me. And I don't care if you're in Florida or Oklahoma or Nevada or New Jersey. 
that is the prevailing uh, wisdom. And, you know, going back to 17 when we had these off-year elections, I haven't seen the interest level in at least Latinos diminish at all. And despite all of the rhetoric that came from the Gillespie campaign in Virginia, for example, when he brought out the MS-13 ad, that only fired our base up even more because it's like, how dare he compare us to that lot? And I think they're insulted by politicians, whether they're extremists like Corey Stewart or someone who's just trying to get elected like uh, Gillespie, compare them with someone who would sympathize with an MS-13 gang member. Because that's just not clearly how the community feels. You know, we we want law and order, too, because guess what? When these people are committing crimes, they're usually committing them in Latino neighborhoods or back in their native country. You know, I mean, Albert, the challenge has been that Hispanic voters don't turn out at the same rate as other demographic groups. So one of the other challenges, though, they're not registered at the same rate. I mean, have you seen a, a spike in registration? Have you seen Democrats really double down on efforts like that to try to register these voters, whether it's in Texas or Arizona or Nevada or, or wherever? Yeah, um, to address your first point, the reason Latinos, or part of the reason Latinos tend to turn out in lower rates is if you look at the surveys that have been done that research this, this topic, Latinos compared to African-Americans and white voters get reached out to 10% less on average during a presidential election. Mm-hmm. It's even that number is probably worse during a midterm mm-hmm. because the assumption is, well, they're not going to turn out, so why? It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right, you're saying. Right, okay. that kind of thing. And so as a result, luckily, you know, working with the, the various party infrastructure, they took heat of that as early as last year, and we've been working with a lot of our partners a lot earlier than we normally would. Uh, for example, the folks who are trying to take back the, the house, we've been working with them since you know late last year, where normally we wouldn't really be engaged till late summer uh, around Labor Day. But now we've been at this for enough to figure out where the holes are. And again, we've got, we had a good problem this cycle. We had more candidates than we knew what to do with. In some of our most competitive races in California, we had up to 20 candidates. And try try breaking through. <laughs> try breaking through if you're 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 one of those candidates. So on the voter registration front, I'm seeing a lot of uh, work done in Florida that might contribute to our wins in either the governor's race or the Senate race to get Senator Nelson reelected. Uh, you're seeing a lot more activity uh, earlier. And voter registration is hard. It's, it's very expensive. You know, just because you register someone, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to convince them to go out and vote. You still have to track them, and you still have to compel them to turn out. Is, is a message of turnout in 2018 entirely about Trump, or is it something else? No, I, I think it's a given that people in our community aren't the biggest fans of the president, <laughs> right? Sure. So the candidates who are effectively articulate their message in a way that says, okay, if you elect uh, this Democrat— this person is going to work work to it so that you preserve your health care or get your health care back in some cases because health care is that one dominant theme across all racial lines right now that seems to be at the top of the minds of most voters because it's only gotten more expensive. And, you know, Trump didn't help himself by promising to fix it. And what's happened is he's actually made it worse in Democratic households and Republican households. And I think if Democrats were able to make that point effectively, they'll be successful come election day. 
and maybe even by virtue of inviting you on this show, we've revealed that we in the media tend to loop immigration issues with Hispanic voters. Where do Hispanic voters rank immigration as an issue? It's usually, you know, three, four. It's not the top issue. It's more of a barometer. You know, if you interview a Latino voter on a given day and they find out that you're not in favor of comprehensive immigration reform, the assumption is probably that you're not in favor of doing what's right by the Latino community because everyone has a family member or a friend that they know who was here undocumented, in some cases, entire families. Albert, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So immigration is clearly at the forefront of the discussion here in Washington. We want to bring on our own Adam Walner now to ask whether or not it's at the forefront of the discussion in a lot of the major states across the country. Adam Wolner is here to introduce us to the Influencers Program. Andrew, Alex, it is so great to be back on a podcast with you once again. We should mention that the three of us actually used to work together at National Journal. That's right. What feels like ages ago, uh, at least for me. I, I, Adam, Adam was there literally two weeks ago. Yes. So, so not so Still much kind of feels like ages ago. Still yeah, kind now, of now feels that, like Now that I've ago. been uh, really diving into to these uh, influencer projects here. So yeah, I'm excited to, to tell you guys about it. Yeah. So, so explain what it is. Yeah, so essentially in, in four of the, the big states, uh, you know, where, of course, McClatchy has newspapers, but also, you know, important states to the broader political scene in the United States, Florida, California, Missouri, North Carolina, McClatchy has sort of gotten together this group of what we're calling influencers. It's about 50 to 60 people in each state, and it's, it's some of the most influential voices and leaders uh, across a variety of communities in these states, politics, business, academics, faith, you name it. And basically what we want to do is sort of check in with these folks every now and then between now and the midterm elections in November to get a sense of what they see as the top issues of the campaign and how they think the candidates who are running for office should be addressing them because, you know, they're, they're very well tied into to their various communities or talking to people on the ground all the time. So we feel like we can get a lot of valuable insight from, from what they're telling us through these surveys that we're basically sending out to them. Um, we're going to be doing it every other week through Labor Day, and then Labor Day through November, it's, it's going to be every week we're going to have you know, some stories based off of these results f- from our influencers. And since we have the first round of results in, uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about immigration and where this is fitting into concerns of voters in, in some of the key states that the Influencer Project is looking yeah, at. Yeah, so, so kind of interestingly... Immigration did not really rate as as one of the top issues in the surveys that we did. Uh, we, we sent them out to the influencers last week. You know, we got the results in Thursday night, and uh, we, we got some stories up Monday morning. And and of course, and, I'm, and you guys, I know, on the first part of this podcast, we're talking a lot about um, everything that's going on with family separation at the border right now. And, and I feel like that that media coverage has really ramped up in in recent days. And our survey results, I think, came in kind of uh, well before a lot of this was really starting. To, to rise to the level it has now. So, so I, I do kind of wonder if the results would maybe look a little bit different if we did that survey again this week. But, but at the same time, we also wanted to make sure that each of these surveys was as specific to the states as possible. And this is certainly a national issue, and it, it's certainly the most felt at the U.S.-Mexico border. So you're looking at the states that we did, Florida, California, Missouri, North Carolina, you know, you might think in Florida and even California, immigration might have been a slightly higher issue, but it ended up not being one of the top issues in, in this uh, first round of, of survey. So what were the top issues? So in, in Florida, we were looking at economic inequality and education. Those came in pretty much at 1A and 1B. And an interesting thing that we found there is that a lot of our influencers 
kind of tied those issues together, and, and they kind of thought that together those were kind of the, the biggest obstacles standing in the way of a better Florida. Then you look in, in California, the economy, jobs, a top issue. Not a surprise that the economy was a top issue kind of across the board. It, you know, it, I feel like in any election cycle, the, the, you know, people are always going to be concerned about the economy. It's always the economy. You know, even though, you know, unemployment is actually, you know, down right now. And, um, you know, it's not something that the administration is maybe touting all that well at, at the <laughs> moment. But, you know, I think no matter the, the economic climate, that's always going to be something that people sort of are going to be voting on and keeping in the back of their heads when they're going to the polling booth. So you look in, in Missouri, the economy, jobs were top issues. Education was up there as well, as was infrastructure. And that was actually the focus of, of the Kansas City Star story this week. A lot of people very concerned about the state of infrastructure in Missouri. And then North Carolina, similar story, education, economy, jobs. But but one issue that was unique to North Carolina was political polarization. And that this has been a very deeply divided state in the past few years, particularly at, at the state house. So it's no surprise that that kind of rose to the top in North Carolina and didn't necessarily for some of the other states. That's fascinating. A state that ranks its own political polarization as a top political issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're very self-aware about it. <laughs> well, Adam, we really look forward to hearing from you regularly uh, in the coming weeks and months about how these top issues change uh, in, in the eyes of these influencers. That said, Adam, don't go anywhere just yet, because you know what? It's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. It's the lightning round, where we identify one mover or shaker making moves ahead of 2016 or 2018. Adam, I gave you the whole preamble there, so you know what to expect. Tell us... What is your topic? So I wanted to focus in on John Kasich. You guys remember him? I don't know how, I do. how often you guys are talking about the Ohio governor these days, a 2016 presidential candidate himself. Uh, he, he's on his way out of office, actually. But there was a Quinnipiac poll that came out last week that I thought was pretty interesting. Shows him in very good standing among Ohio voters right now. 52% uh, from this poll said that they approve of his job performance. 36% disapprove. But the most interesting thing was actually the breakdown among party. Among Republicans, they're pretty split on him. It's only 46% approve, 44% disapprove. Democrats, actually, 57% approve of the way the Republican governor is handling his job compared to 33% who disapprove. And then for independents, it was pretty similar to that, 55% approve, 32% disapprove. So a couple of ways to look at this. One, in terms of John Kasich potentially positioning himself for a 2020 presidential run, he might, he might have better better luck running as a third-party candidate or, or as an independent. That seems or, to be where his base is. Or maybe is. as a Democrat. Any, he would yeah. have a better chance there than the Republican primary. Exactly. I but, and I think it'll, but and then also just keeping it on the midterms as well, I, it'll be interesting to see how that impacts both the, the race to replace him, the Ohio governor's race, and, and the Senate race, two big races. What role does John Kasich play there? Do Republicans try and tie themselves to Kasich? Do Democrats try and show places where they agree with, with Governor Kasich, given his, his high approval rating? So one figure to watch both uh, for the midterms and then looking forward into 2020. Adam, that's a pretty good debut. Lightning round. Say he already shamed us on day one. <laughs> he already sh- Maybe too good. Okay, Andrew. You guys can always cut it. <laughs> and we will. Andrew, who do you got? Uh, let's go back to Texas. Uh, yesterday evening, Ted Cruz was one of the first senators out the gate with a solution to end the family separation at the border. Our friends over at the Dallas Morning News dug into that last night and said that he is trying to mitigate the effects of the zero tolerance policy by speeding the removal of most asylum seekers. 
but uh, also add some immigration court judges and mandates that you stop the separation of families at the border, which is maybe what people have been expecting or thinking that he would do at some point in this race, like make some appeal to Hispanic voters. And it hasn't really happened so far, but, but this is new. This is new, and it's interesting because, you know, we didn't talk about with Albert, you've seen some other Republicans, too, start to defect from someone like Kevin Yoder in a suburban Kansas, suburban Kansas City seat. There's a real vulnerable Republican in 2018, came out and signaled his own dissent from this policy. So you are starting to see already here on Tuesday some of the Republican Party really show some uneasiness with this policy. I think probably it is a strong indication of where the politics of this is for the moment. So my lightning round to something, a, a little nugget that I stumbled across in reporting a story about why Democratic women are having so much success in their party's House primaries, really unprecedented success. The interesting thing that every pollster told me, there isn't a gender gap on this issue. Women are voting for women in Democratic primaries, but you know what? So are men. Men are voting for women in Democratic primaries. It is something I heard from three or four pollsters specifically who said they looked into whether or not some men were holding out the cases. Generally speaking, they aren't. So it's something interesting to consider, too, as we move forward here, just how many uh, more women win these nominations to the House race. Like I said, it's already at an unprecedented clip. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Look forward to having you on future shows. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Drush, a pleasure as always. Thanks. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.